right, uh, civic hospitality. Um, so Mark and I have been working on something that we're excited to share with you of you who are here. <laughs> uh, so when I say civic, what does that mean to you? This is where you share. Like responsibility. Public. Responsibility. Responsibility. What else?
it's a pretty grim picture. Uh, I, I, mean, I think the words they use, I think, are pretty significant. Uh, so in that last line, uh, the, the rhetoric that's being used has intensified popular disaffection. So affected, right, our, our love or our care for one another. It's not just that our ideas are different, but our caring for one another is different. Uh, go to the next slide, uh, it shows uh, survey results. Americans' views of perceived threats to the United States country or the U.S.'s future. The number one threat identified, and this is by people who self-identify as either people on the right or on the left. Number one threat to America. Political polarization and divisiveness. With, I think it's 60, 69% label that as our number one threat. If you go down the list, you'll actually notice that the other issues are other things that also polarize. Uh, so it's not just exterior threats, but other interior polarization items. So racism, inequality and poverty, and then the next one, media distortion and fake news. Things that are themselves polarizing issues. So polarization, it's a real Thing. Uh, and again, I think we, we know it in our bones, we feel it, we see it in our own communities. Uh, a long, longer quote here, won't read all of it, but what it's getting at is common culture of fear, of distrust. And if you look at the last line of the first paragraph, or second to the last line of the last first paragraph, I'll read this. The most charitable thing that opponents say about each other is that they are misguided or misinformed. So that's the kindest thing that someone on the other side of an issue might say about the other person. Well, they're misguided. They're misinformed. It quickly goes beyond that to ways that each side sees the other as closed-minded, intolerant, hypocritical, and dangerous, among other things. Uh, one of our team members that we'll talk about in a second, uh, Kevin Dendalk, who uh, teaches at Calvin University uh, in the political science um, uh, department as well. Now I think he's the provost at Calvin. He talks about as as they study polarization, there's been a there's been little shift in what he calls ideological polarization, like. People on the right had certain views, and people on the left had certain views. And over the last number of years, those views haven't changed all that much. There hasn't been that significant of changes. What has changed is what he calls effective polarization, meaning that we don't want to associate with people who might have a different position. Um, so whereas in the past, you talk to your neighbor who has a different political viewpoint. Now you might not talk to them. You might see them as, again, dangerous. Uh, their views may or may not have changed, but our association with them certainly has. Uh, I was at a, con uh, a session yesterday that quoted an article called uh, The Culture of Contempt. And in that article, it said that one in six Americans said they have lost a relationship with either a close family member or close friends. Uh, gets that this effective polarization, breaking apart relationships. 
so the project that we've been working on for the last year, Folks who were working on this and said, wait a minute, 
We need something thicker. We need something more richer and deeper than tolerance. Because tolerance doesn't go far enough. Tolerance, I can tolerate someone who I don't like at all, but they're not welcome to the table. I'm not learning from them. They're not learning from me. It's too limited. And so, really, using Matthew Kamen's work, uh, who is a professor of public theology at Fuller, uh, he actually did his work in the Netherlands, looking at Muslim refugees coming to the Netherlands, uh, how were they welcomed, how did it uh, change their society, how were they received in hospitality or in hospitality. So, why hospitality, not tolerance? I think hospitality is the bigger picture, and it's thicker, it's richer, uh, it's actually more biblical. And so, kind of quick, big picture, biblical overview of hospitality. I typically don't think about Genesis 1 as a text of hospitality. But when we think about God creating the universe, the way that God creates the universe is he separates the waters. He's creating space for life to flourish, which is actually what hospitality is. It's creating space for others. So on the very first page of, uh, of Scripture, we see God making space for life to happen. God doesn't need to create humanity, but God, out of his abundance, abundance of love, creates space for humans to exist and for humans to flourish. So right on the first page of the Bible, we have hospitality. Not the word, but the concept. Making space for others. One of those famous pictures in Genesis is Genesis 18, where Abraham and Sarah welcome the three visitors. And Abraham and Sarah make space for the visitor. They show hospitality. They go and create a meal. And without them knowing it, we learn later that Abraham and Sarah were welcoming God himself. That this picture of hospitality, welcoming the stranger. They didn't know who they were but they welcomed them, and that them was God. That's Genesis 18, striking other picture, Genesis 19, right afterwards. Visitors show up in a city called Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot welcomes them into their home, but the mobs of the city want to abuse the strangers. So we have a picture of Abraham and Sarah welcoming visitors with grace and warmth at the table. And the very next chapter we get is a picture of people wanting to abuse the visitors. And that city is destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, we can continue throughout the biblical story. It shows up time and time again. God opening, God making space for the other. Israel's uh, told repeatedly, you were once strangers. So now you are strangers welcoming strangers when they are in the promised land. That was their imperative. That was their call. One of the things we look at in the curriculum is looking at the crucifixion as an act of hospitality. How will God welcome us into his presence? An act of hospitality. God himself goes to the cross in arms open wide, an act of hospitality, of embrace, welcoming the world to himself, but hospitality is costly. 
It will cost us something. Tolerance doesn't cost us anything. It's where I think hospitality is richer. It's thicker, it's more complex, but it has more to offer. So the very act of crucifixion is an act of hospitality. And then just three passages um, um, that not only has God been hospitable to us, but here's our instructions. Romans 12, practice hospitality. Like, go do it. Hebrews 13, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 4, 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And we can pick others as well. The Greek word for hospitality, uh, I think, is richer. Uh, it hints at something that we lose in English. Uh, it's a combination of two words, philio and xenos. Philio is the Greek word for love. And it's in particular like friendly love, like someone who's family or kin. Uh, you have close association with them. You have filial love for your friend. But xenos is stranger. So now it's this mix of you have family-like love or friend-like love for the other. Show friend love to the other. Uh, which is, of course, flipped in xenophobia, right? Fear of the other. Uh, so, hints at some of the kind of biblical perspective that gets woven into some of these uh, curriculum units. Uh, hints at these things, there are more. Um, so, as a team, we have now developed uh, six kind of mini units or sections of lessons uh, that focus on one of these topics. Um, which came after a lot of discussion um, and, I don't know, like a guiding of the spirit, essentially. Of, these are the things that we feel like we need to focus on. Um, so Mark and I have worked together on the first one, hospitality, and just what does hospitality, civic hospitality, look like, kind of defining it. Um, Mark worked on number two. Yep. Uh, so humanity. Um, how do we humanize our, the people that we live with? Versus the ways in which we dehumanize people. Um, words matter. Portrayal of, word, uh, of people matter. So exercises like looking at a news story and what images get aligned with the news stories. Right? Like how do we either humanize or dehumanize the language that we use. Uh, so it's a lot of stuff about image of God. Uh, what does it look like to be made in the image of God and how that affects civic engagement. Um, I worked on the third one, stories, um, and we looked particularly at what types of stories are we listening to and being told, and what does that tell us about the other. Um, so once again, like this is a civics class, so we're looking at stories within the news, um, but we also were thinking very specifically about uh, stories that you might hear within court cases um, or ways that government is functioning. And what is that teaching you about how to view the other and how not to view the other? Um, what, is, what does hospitality look like in that space? Uh, and character is about our character, uh, right? What do we take with us into whatever civic space we enter into? So not just politics, that's one part of civic engagement. But again, neighborhood association meetings, uh, sitting on the soccer sideline. Uh, it is all civic engagement. 
Uh, so we talk about here about postures. And we use this image, uh, what do we do with our hands? Right? Uh, some of us talk with our hands, big, make hand, big hand gestures. But we look at kind of three and then add a fourth hand gesture that might shape our sleep engagement. So we might, uh, might hit with our hands, right? Kind of a defensive, uh, protective posture. We hear something that we disagree with, and we might react with a hit. Uh, that might protect us, and actually might, we might hit in order to protect someone else, but that's a kind of a, a, a fight mentality. Uh, we might handshake, make kind of contractual agreements uh, with someone, uh, enter into kind of a partnership. You might not agree, but you are going to work on something together. A hug of embrace. Uh, and then what we look at in that particular unit, or that lesson, Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And looking at that as civic engagement. Because Jesus goes face to face now with political power. And one person wants to cut off her ear, bite. Judas comes in for the hug. Uh, and we add a fourth posture. Jesus extends a hand of healing. Even in the midst, like this is not going to gain him anything. But he seeks to heal. Even in the most contentious acts of political engagement. He extends a healing hand. Uh, neither Mark nor I worked on number five decisions, uh, but I know that they talked a lot about how in our culture there tends to be a winner-take-all, um, which can then not be an overly hospitable environment for a lot of people. Uh, so as we consider even our classroom structures or you're, you're, no, you're all on a basketball team and we have to make this decision as a team, what does it look like when we make decisions trying to act out of a place of hospitality? Um, not just looking out for myself, but asking questions and considering what, what might this look like for another person. Um, and really, you know, in a civics classroom, trying to kind of make that your... I don't know, like your lab of study almost in the way that you go about making decisions as a class um, and what that might look like then obviously on larger and larger scales um, going from there. Uh, and then uh, I worked on the case study. Um, we were looking particularly at uh, considering how um, people within the church are hospitable or not hospitable and what that looks like, which is really, really tough. But asking the students to ask some questions of their pastors and their youth pastors and, and go through an interview in a way that would ask for questions in a hospitable manner. Um, but then even going from there, now that I kind of know what the church is doing or not doing, what are some of maybe these civic organizations doing or not doing? Um, and seeking out uh, nonprofits or talking to government officials and trying to figure out, like, what are they up to? And then taking all of that knowledge and saying, now me as an individual, what does this look like for me as I move forward? Um, so kind of having them try to practice all of that within that broader context. Uh, two other thoughts on the unit lessons. Uh, one, Kelly mentioned that they're geared for a civic course, uh, coursework, uh, but also with minds that there could be overlap. So as a Bible teacher, I'm thinking of I teach about hospitality. And so rather than just teach abstractly about hospitality, I can take actually a civic lesson and bring it into my Bible class. 
Same thing for humanity or state. I mean, each of these could go into uh, a Bible class, particularly, or any other class that might kind of hint at these things. So it's, it's geared towards civics, but with an eye towards other particular uses. Uh, the second one that's not in here, but it's kind of in the background, getting at your kind of dissonance of civics and hospitality, hospitality, I think, of food, one of the potential things that uh, we have written in here that a, a teacher could use is actually hosting a meal, having the students host a meal. After they kind of work through some of these uh, units, they learn about being hospitable, about humanizing others, sharing one another's stories, having a posture of healing and humility, how to make decisions, and actually have a meal together, and have a, perhaps a political conversation with people you disagree with, and actually how the meal changes them. Um, how does the Lord's Supper change how we engage with one another? Uh, one of the things that comes to mind is in the New York Times about, maybe three years ago, David Brooks mentioned in one of his editorials that he thought that um, in politics overall, people had forgotten to how to use their fork and how to engage in a conversation as if they were, you know, at a meal yeah. together, yep. right? And I, I guess I kind of use it as a guiding thing, like when you eat together, something spiritual happens. Yep. It's just the way it is. And um, I really enjoy that because I'm not very smart when it comes to all this politicals, political stuff, you know, my husband loves it. And yet, when you put it in terms for me in the conversation at the table, I get it. You can't sit that way and you cannot use your fork that way. That's just gross. Or I don't want to see what's in your mouth right now, right? So it's just interesting for me that that helps me understand the conversation uh, better when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, and if you think about in the Bible, how many... How many instances in the gospel is Jesus sitting down and eating meals with people? Like, he is modeling what this looks like over and over and over and over. Um, and, and not just with his friends. Yeah, not just with his friends. With yeah. the, the sinners and the heathens, man. Yep. yep. So. Mark. Yeah. Well, just a question. I think, um, I mean, you, you've hit on this, that even your, your example. But, but in, in our setting, as, in, as, uh, as educators, when our students, I mean, with everything being so polarized, and then obviously you have parents that obviously communicate their views or their position on things, and the kids bring that into the school, how do, how do we as an institution continue to get at that? Because I, I, I really see, and I think we all probably agree, is that all the polarization is really dividing our Christian community. I mean, and all this divisiveness is just really like, so I'm saying if, if we're not intentionally trying to get at this, I mean, how do, how do you bring people to the gospel when they look at us? It's like, well, look at, look at this. I mean, if, we, if we're not intentionally, I mean, obviously we know we're broken and we're sinners and we are working at it, but I'm saying another level of intentionality of really getting at this in a school setting. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think this all, don't get me wrong, I know this all ties to that. But what are some things that we can get at with our students that, um, to help them understand, like like you even mentioned earlier, just like, we don't even get along as Christians. 
politics and race and, and all of those things. Now, even as Christians, like, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. And so what, how, how do we get at some tangible ways to get at that school level? But, I mean, that's, that's the huge question, right? Um, and I think one thing that won't fix it is simply talking about it. Right? Let's, let's keep talking about how we should get along. Uh, now, not to diminish that, we should teach about it. We should teach about uh, you know, reconciliation. We should teach about the, the concepts of these things. What we're trying to do in this particular curriculum is also like give practices of that. Uh, and so I do, I mean, this is small. It's in a course, but it's, as Kelly mentioned earlier, we're not trying to simply teach about hospitality. We're trying to get students to actually practice it in a in a community. Um, so, and so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, every single one of these like sections of units has really intentional like pedagogical practices, really intentional um, choices in what we're doing of trying to continue to help students like lean into that tension more than just I'm reading a story in class, but the way that we designed that third thing makes students uncomfortable, and then they have to talk about why they're uncomfortable. Um, and continuing to like lean into that. Yeah. There's one lesson in here that I, I think is just fantastic. I think they're all fantastic, but there's one uh, that has students tell their story uh, to like on politics, I think it's related to like an, an issue that you're passionate about, and to kind of mind that story. Like, how did you become passionate about that? When did you become passionate about that? How did you learn kind of political or civic language from home? What was that like? In my family upbringing, we sat at a table and we argued politics. That's what we did. So that's why I learned civic engagement was like an argument. Uh, and if someone else's civic engagement is, I don't want to engage, I see that as a problem. But I'm bringing my family story into this, and someone else is bringing their family story. So one of our lessons, actually, go talk with your, your family. Think about how, you, how you've learned civic engagement, and we're going to share those out, actually, in, in class, uh, in smaller groups. Because stories is one of the key ways of actually, I think, bridging that gap. Um, so again, to your point, to your question, I think it's going to be incremental. It's going to take a long time. We're, we're swimming upstream. It's not linear. It's not linear. Uh, and it's both content and practice. It's We're going to teach about, about things, and we want students to practice it in the classroom, beyond the classroom. Um, I think the other thing they need is models, right? They need to see us practice it. Uh, again, built into these are some stories of, uh, of examples of people who have bridged that gap. Um, I think one of the difficulties is that adults are being such bad role models. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yep. We looked on the news and it's just filled with yeah. adults that aren't acting. Well, and it's, it's their parents like, showing up to board meetings. Or even their own parents, yeah. yeah. These board yeah. meetings showing up and screaming. And it's just, but the thing is, that showing it a good, you know, a 
thinking in an organic way, and Allie has no idea I would use her as a teacher of my own daughter as an example. So we send our kids to Granville Christian, right? Allie is in an immersion program. We wanted the immersion program. Our older daughter was in Ellie's class. But what are the, one of the wonderful things that Ellie has in her class that she teaches? She teaches awareness of this world, um, issues of, of just of things, right? When I sent my kids there, I didn't, I didn't go, oh, I'm going to choose that school because of that. But our daughter came home, elicited conversations, and you're like, as a parent going, huh, I didn't really know that that was going to be a byproduct, but this is why I guess I send my kids to a Christian school. It's making my world bigger. And my daughters are aware of things I was unaware of in my own schooling. So just as a parent, when you say role models in a very positive way, definitely the teachers are because they're making conversations happen at the table that I didn't necessarily choose. And then the second thing is I think there's a word called contempt that you brought. And I think that's a, a very strong uh, word. And I think that the more we can identify it in ourselves, we can be a solution. Because contempt is a very hateful word, a word my mother never let us use with my four brothers and four sisters. Contempt is, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued. Like, what do you mean by the word contempt? Because that is a, ah. So, the Gottman Institute is an uh, institute that like, does marriage counseling. Um, so I'm going to impose marriage counseling into this. Sure. Um, the research out of the, the Gottman Institute, uh, Dr. Gottman, who started this, yeah. said within minutes, he could predict the success or failure of a marriage. Based on that word. Based on contempt. Yep. And he would watch eye contact as his couple would talk to about one another. And if there was an eye roll, mm -hmm. uh, if there was an eye roll from one spouse to, or the other, or kind of a, what he talked about, this, this facial expression of contempt, it was his prediction that, that marriage will not last. And so if we take that kind of, that facial expression of kind of disgust um, for the other, that our marriage as a country in civics won't last. If we see the other with kind of this characteristic eye roll, because of whatever difference it might be, socioeconomic, ideological, uh, racial, ethnic, whatever it might be, if we approach the other with, again, going back to that quote from the beginning, with disaffection, with contempt, kind of looking down upon this characteristic eye roll, if we can't see the good in the other, we don't have a future. Say that, sir. Yeah. Well, and in the classroom, too, as teachers, uh, you can't let that behavior go. You have to call it. Um, you have to. Because I, I, I see it in my classroom. We talk about, like I say, we're going to talk about immigration today. And the kid in the back goes, Ugh. And I'm like, no. No. You're going to, like... What are you going, like, you have to ask questions. And so it's this, this breeding of curiosity that has to occur because your first step toward hospitality is you have to be curious. Yeah. And I think that's why hospitality, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, if you're going to put up walls, then you've lost. Yep. And I think that's why we've landed on hospitality and not tolerance. Because tolerance, I think, 
is a quicker slip into contempt. I'll tolerate you. I have no desire to learn from you. Hospitality, again, is love of others. Like, if there's not love in this relationship, then what's the point? Um, let me talk about house. Sure. Uh, we'll give you kind of a snapshot of a couple of different lessons. We've got just a few minutes now. Um, one of the opening lessons is on hospitality. Uh, in the lesson, we would actually have like students read and engage with a particular article uh, that uh, was adapted from Matthew Kamick. Uh, it was published in the Washington Post. Uh, but essentially, he uses the idea of a house. So I want you to think about a house, your, perhaps your own home. And I want you to kind of close your eyes, envision your home. I want you to think about like the walls of your home. So kind of, particularly you know, like your exterior walls. Uh, just kind of walk through your house mentally. Imagine the exterior walls. And I want you to think about the windows that you have in your home and your doorways that you have in your home. Particularly exterior doorways. Alright, we'll stop there. What's the function of your walls in your home? What does it do for your house? Support. What is it? Support. Support. It's the kind of structure, right? It gives support to your home. Privacy. Good. What's it? Privacy. Privacy. Protection. Protection. To keep the heat in. Keep certain, like the heat elements. in, especially, right? Uh, in, and, the, out. and the elements out. Uh, what about the doors and the windows? Let light in. Let light in. Let's light in. And in that sense, bring some warmth, and like not just temperature, but it's a warmer place, right? Fresh air. Fresh air. Allow entry and departure. People can get in and people can get out. You, like I'm thinking about different doors, right? There's a side door, which is for like getting in food. There's a front door, which is for welcoming guests. And there's the back door, which is just us in and out. So we eat, we're actually being nourished, right? It's, uh, we think about eating as just like that's what we do. But it actually is sustaining us, right? It's, it's, uh, it's what allows us to continue to do our life. If we don't eat, we can't live. Conversation. We talk. We know each other. Share stories. 
there's some devotions for them too. Yeah. yeah. Pray, read, gaze, socialize, yeah. homework. Yep. Yep. Sometimes arguments, it's the first time that we've been able to be together and um, it's it's very hard, it's a dichotomy, but we've made this lonely meal and that's sometimes where who's been too late to come to the table, emotions are hot, it's painful, but it's where we have raw emotions. Quite often it's probably the most raw place in our household at times. So this image of walls, doors, and table. Is the image that we want to, we lead with in the curriculum that we'll keep coming back to? Because walls have purpose. They give security. They provide protection. Uh, they keep they keep elements out. Uh, they I think they say boundaries? Boundaries. Definitely. Boundaries. But if all that we have are walls, that's a pretty cold place. Right? No one can actually get to the table. If all that we have are doors, and the doors are always open, obviously it allows people in, allows the light in, allows warmth in, allows people to come and go, it's warm, it's hospitable. But if it's, if it's always open, like your neighbors can always come in, and they're never closed, that's actually an act of inhospitality, to your family, to those closest to you. So you need to be able to have like these doors open and close. We need to have boundaries, but we also need to let the doors be open. But if all that we do is open and close doors, we walk through, it's, then it's just a building. If we actually never come to the table and eat with one another, to be nourished, to share stories, pray, get to know, with one, know, know one another, uh, so the article we had them read actually kind of fleshes it out a bit more, plays with that image. Uh, talks about on, in American context, there's a political side that maybe talks a bit more about building walls, right? And if, what's the strength of that? So we're trying to get the hospital, like, it's not, we need to have walls in society. We need to have foundations. We need to have security, a sense of protection. Otherwise, no one feels safe. Uh, but there's another side that sometimes talks about windows and doors, and we need people to come and go, we need the warmth and fresh air. But if that's all that we have, again, no one feels safe, uh, because it's always open, and you can never close the door and say, we need to have a conversation. And if that's all we do, well, we still need a table. So, sorry, that's... Um, so then we would ask the students to think about, like, what does this look like for me? Is there a part of my existence as a student where I feel like the doors are always open or the walls are too high? Um, and get them to kind of personally think about that before we move to that, like, that civics context. Um, a lot of work in hospitality is it has to be a personal decision. And as that's a personal decision to seek hospitality, then you surround yourself with people who are also seeking that. Um, and, and you work together, the beauty of Christian community, essentially. Um, so in high school, if we can get students to continue to engage with themselves and build this identity deeply, deeply rooted in the example of Jesus and what we see in the Bible, from there, incrementally, like that contempt 
is something that we can continue to fight against. Um, I was in a session yesterday that was talking about how uh, racism is like, um, it's not like getting your tonsils removed, it's like brushing your teeth. Hospitality is like brushing your teeth. You have to brush your teeth in order to continue to break down the contempt. If you forget to brush your teeth, then the contempt grows. Um, it's the same type of like bitter sin that we see um, throughout our world. Um, so essentially, Mark and I have, well, and the team has developed this curriculum and we're to the point where it needs to be piloted. Um, we will do some lessons in our own, like in our own classes, um, but essentially we need to pilot the curriculum and figure out what's working and what isn't um, before it kind of moves to the next phase, phase, which is publication. So, our contact info is up there. If there's anyone in your building who you feel like maybe would want to try a few of these lessons, love that. But it's been a really fun project and it's definitely been shaping the way that I, I think about my classroom and the, the activities that I'm choosing and um, yeah, I'm really thankful I've been part of it.